this is probably the, the weirdest sermon title I've ever had. I debated calling this hand, foot, and mouth, but <laughs> it's a little too close to home sometimes for some of us. <laughs> had that happen before. Tongues and feet. I hope, I hope that you will see as we go why it's called that, uh, not just some random body parts put up there. But before we get into the text, let, let's just review, because last week was Easter, and we kind of diverged a little bit from First Peter. And I just want to say, too, again, thank you, worship team. Praise I praise God for you, leading us today, leading us last week. Man, the Spirit is just moving in those times, and it's just so nice to be able to sit back and listen to brothers and sisters singing and worshiping the Lord together. It's great. Thank you for your leadership, Jordan, and the rest of the team. Appreciate you. So here's a couple of the the big items that Peter has been instructing the church on. So number one, authority is not a dirty word. Submission in the biblical context, these are not dirty words at all. These are actually put in place by God. Authority, even the authority that you don't like, is put there by God himself. Secondly, we have been called, therefore, if authority is of God, we have been called as Christians to submit to that authority in varying ways, in appropriate ways. We've talked about that before. Uh, most recently, verses 8 and 9, Peter's laying out these principles on how to relate to one another in the church. And so there's seven things. They're in your notes. I'm just going to read them. We're not going to expound on them. Just as a review of where we move into today. Seven things, starting with unity of mind. Secondly, being sympathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep kind of a thing. Number three, loving, love one another. Simply because we all have the same father, love one another. Be tender-hearted towards one another. This is not roughness, this is tenderness. It's being like Jesus. Number five, humility, being humble or courteous, your version might say. Thinking of others as more significant than yourself before yourself. Number six, be forgiving. We're not seeking uh, to have revenge, to repay evil for evil, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. And number seven, be a blessing. And we'll come back to this in the text today as well, but the Christians that Paul, Peter is writing to, this includes you guys. Christians are called to be a blessing, salt and light in the world, and only the Spirit of God himself empowers and compels people to go out into the world and to live this way. And so if you've been changed... By Jesus, if you've been changed by his sacrifice, you have the power to go out and to treat fellow church members this way, to treat bosses or employees this way, to treat husbands or wives this way, even people in those categories that you don't agree with or that don't agree with you. And so we get dropped off at verse 10 of chapter 3, where Peter begins to quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. And In verses 10 through 12, he just quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And he quotes it with the intention, I think, of explaining the kind of perspective that Christians need when you go through difficulties, when the going gets tough, if you will, specifically when it comes to persecution. And so Peter ties the words from Psalm 34, words of David there, with the idea of walking through suffering in this life. And so we need to hear these things today. Read with me verses 10 through 16 of chapter 3. For whoever desires to love life 
and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Would you pray with me? Lord, it would seem that in our world, this topic is becoming more and more a reality for believers. And it's it's been this way in other parts of the world for a long, long time. And yet in America, we've not seen the kind of backlash and persecution against Christianity like we have today in a long time. And so we need to hear this today, Lord, because your word is clear. Peter's very clear. He says, when, not if. It's coming. We will be ridiculed we will be persecuted and we need to know how to respond in those moments because our flesh often rises up and would tell us and lead us to respond in all kinds of ungodly ways and we don't want that kind of example to be lived out through our lives and so lord teach us this morning from your word how to respond in these moments in christ's name i pray amen so look at the first line that he quotes from psalm 34 this is i think something we can all identify with. It may not be something that we feel all the time, but at some point we do. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. So so just raise your hand if you can say that. If you desire to love life and see good days, raise your hand. Don't be shy. I don't think this is something you should be like ashamed of. Yeah, we this is something that we all want. We want to love life. We want to see good days. In fact, this is the pursuit of much of the world, right? They just want to have a good day. They just want to love their life. Peter, Peter and David before him says, you want, to, you want these things? Well, keep reading. How do you, how do you accomplish this? How, do, how can you be really fulfilled in your life? And so in that terminology, the question that jumps to my mind at least is this. Okay, so if, if David and now Peter's quoting David and they're saying that in order to love life and see good days, you have to do these things. Are they saying then that we can pursue fulfillment in this life? Is that the highest end? Are they saying that that there's the recipe for it in verses 10 and 11 here? We just, you know, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So there's like three check check mark boxes there. Hey, that's it. You want to be fulfilled in life? Boom. There you go. There's your answer. Now, the inner, the inner Pharisee in us would like that, wouldn't it? The inner just rule keeper and like, okay, this is it. This is the formula for fulfillment. Check these boxes. Do these three simple steps and you'll have lasting contentment. Fulfillment. No, that's not what he's saying here. But it does bring up the balance. I think there's a tension in this a little bit too between enjoying and loving this life 
and seeing good days on this earth and being fulfilled to some degree, but also knowing and living as if this world is not all that there is. So that, see the tension there? We've, we all raised our hands. I want to love life and see good days. I think David did. I think Peter did. But it doesn't boil down to this formula for fulfillment. I think what Peter is getting at in quoting David in Psalm 34 is basically this. If you desire to make life worth living, right? See good days and uh, love life. If you desire to make life worth living, then you must exhibit a watchfulness over your words and actions. If this is what you want, there's a way that we walk to get there. There's a way that we see what God says in this way to accomplish this. I would even say, maybe even back up another step and say that to be really fulfilled in this life, you have to first believe that God exists. You have to first actually believe that God exists. And not just believe it, but Peter and David before him are saying, you actually have to live it and speak it this way. That God exists. See, the person who believes and lives like this world is all that there is, like seeking fulfillment and loving their life is all that there is, they're not going to do the things that Peter instructs here or that David instructs. They're not going to keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. They don't, don't do those things. Why? Because they don't fear God properly or at all. They don't recognize or remember the judgment is coming. That God sees all. And you know this kind of person. Maybe you've been this kind of person. They hear and they may even know the correct way to speak and to act, but they don't do it. There's a term for that. James uses it. They're a hearer of the word, but not a what? But not a doer of the word. James equates it to the kinds of person that looks at themselves intently in a mirror. You remember? They look at themselves intently in a mirror, but then when they walk away, they immediately forget what they looked like. This person has an identity crisis. They think that they look one way, but they actually look a lot different. Or in terms of what we're talking about today, they think that they're saying one thing and living one thing, when in reality, they're actually saying and living a completely different thing. James says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but therefore deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. If you think you're religious, but you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. Peter is yet again, I think, proving his point that the behavior of Christians in this world is a stark comparison to that of those around them. Where others may be put on a show, live their lives in kind of convicted, or I'm sorry, conflicted convictions. Instead, real believers live lives of intentional godliness, of intentional godliness, so Peter and David both agree. They say this kind of person that wants to love life and see good days, they're going to, verse 11, seek peace and pursue it. James in James three thirteen through 18 helps us out again here. Let me read from that. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So Peter, I don't think, is offering a formula for fulfillment here. He's just simply explaining the proper perspective of God's people in the world in regard to their words and deeds. Verses 10 and 11. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him turn away from evil and do good. And so hopefully you see that where the title of the sermon comes in. Tongues and feet. What are we saying? What are we doing as Christians? Before James ever tells us that we reap a, right, a harvest of righteousness in chapter 3, he goes into detail at the beginning of chapter 3 about an unbridled tongue. And you probably remember this, the beginning of James chapter 3. He equates the tongue to three things. First, he equates the tongue to a, a bit in a horse's mouth. The bit is small in comparison to the whole animal, and yet with that, you can get that horse to go where you want. The second thing that James equates the tongue to is the rudder of a ship. Now, you could have an extremely large ship, but by comparison, the rudder is extremely small. And yet, to get that ship where you want it to go, you turn the rudder. The third thing that he equates a tongue to in James chapter 3 is a spark. He says that the tongue is like a spark that sets a whole forest ablaze. So, James says, look, we bless God with our tongues But then, he says, we turn around and curse people with the same tongue. People that are made in the likeness of God. He says in James chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You guys have lived long enough. You know this is true. You know this is true. Because you can be injured physically, but those scars, those wounds, they end up healing for the most part. But when somebody cuts you down with their words, that lasts. Those are wounds that take years longer to heal, sometimes never healing. And James says in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, From the same mouth comes blessing and cursings. And he says this, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. If we truly want to love life and see good days, we must keep control of what passes over our lips when we speak. We have to bridle our tongue. But on top of that, on top of not speaking deceit, Christians should turn away from evil and do good. There's nothing complicated about this. Turn away from evil. It's not complicated, but it's not sometimes easy. My family and I really like to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. You guys know the show I'm talking about? It's the, we're the ones where people get hurt and we all laugh about it. It's great. It's fantastic. As long as, you know, I'm not on that video, that's, it's fine. We, do, we enjoy watching America's Funniest Home Videos, and I think this is a good illustration of what I want to talk to you about. I don't know if you've watched it recently, but they've told parents to do something, to set up their phone or their camera or whatever, 
on a table or something and then put their little kid there at a seat and then they put a handful of candy in front of the kid. And they say, oh, don't eat this. I got to go get something real quick. I'll be right back. And they're recording the whole time. So just so we're all on the same page, camera recording a little kid with a handful of candy being told not to eat it. Okay? And no supervision. Guess what happens? They eat the candy pretty quickly, some of them. They take it. They are happy to take it. Soon as there's no parent in the room, I mean, some of them last a little longer than others on the videos, but most of the time it's like scarfing it up. It's like this kid has never eaten in his life and he is just eating this candy. I think this depicts the human heart really well. It might not be candy, but every day we are offered a smorgasbord of sin. The enemy, our flesh, they just drop it. The world, they just drop it right in front of us. <laughs> like a little kid, drop this candy right in front of, just drop right in front of us. And we're tempted to sin and we justify things. We say, hey, take that thing that you really want without having to earn it. Because you know what? You deserve it. Go ahead and say that really hurtful thing because you know what? You've been hurt before. Pass on that piece of information. You're not sure if it's true or not, but pass it on because it makes you feel really good to be the first person to say it. The candy is on the table, and the moment that we think that God's not paying attention, we snatch it up. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. No. Peter says we're to turn away from speaking evil and from doing evil, and instead, what does he say to do? Well, the opposite. He says do good. Be a blessing, he's already said in verse 9. Be a blessing. That was verse 8, actually. Do not repay evil for evil and reviling for, for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is it. And then verse 12 gives the reason why Christians are to choose doing good. They choose doing good instead of doing evil. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Look, I, I get it. It is generally a lot easier to just go with the flow and do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. It's, it's hard. You guys understand this. Even kids, some young kids, you guys know it's hard to do the right thing. I mean, you can actually watch some of those videos on AFV of those kids, and you can like almost see that inner struggle. Like, I know I shouldn't do this, but the candy's right there. And it's this, sometimes they hold out for a little while, but I don't think any of them <laughs> just take a little taste and then put it back. I could see the correlation with us two in that. It's easier to do the wrong thing because it, it seems like evil is rewarded almost immediately very often. And yet the reward for good sometimes comes a lot longer or maybe we don't even see the results of that good deed. But here's something that I've heard and it's true. Doing good isn't always easy, but it's always right. When Peter says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, I don't think this is an oppressive kind of a thing. I don't think it's God saying, you better, you better watch your step because I got my eye on you. I don't think that's the intention here. I don't think that's what he's communicating. I think he's saying that God's gracious eye of blessing 
rests on those who seek to be a blessing, to do good, to, to be good to their brothers and sisters, to those who even oppose them. God's eye of blessing is on that kind of a person. His ear is open to their prayers. Now, notice that Peter's laid down really three ways in which God's people see good days. Number one, they rule their speech. They're in charge of what comes out of their mouth. They keep their tongue from evil. Number two, they order their conduct. They turn away from evil. Those feet are moving away from evil, not towards it, not standing there, just kind of maybe going to go into it, licking that candy a little bit. No, they turn, they go, they order their conduct. And thirdly, they set the tone in their relationships by pursuing peace. So we've got it all, our speech, our conduct, and the tone in our relationships. The eyes of the Lord are upon this person, Peter says, and his ears are open to their prayers. Isn't that fantastic news? Just think about it for a second. God sees and listens to you when we pursue peace, when we turn away from evil, when we don't speak evil. I read one of the commentators this week said, if God smiles upon us, what matters it who may frown? God's smile of approval is what Christians seek, right? His ears, his eyes that are inclined then toward them. Look at verse 13. This verse explains the kind of confidence knowing this has on the believers. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Zealous means, it's not a word we use too often anymore. It means passionate. It means dedicated to a cause. The King James, I think, uses the word imitator. He's basically saying, who is there to harm you if you are a follower of good? If you are an imitator of what is good? Ephesians 2, verse 10. James shared this at the the men's trap shoot yesterday. Paul says to the Christians, he says that Christians, you are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works before you were ever around for you to now walk in them. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So the good that you're able to do in any given situation, that should be the thing that you get the most excited about. To be excited about being a blessing. But I got to ask, is that the kind of attitude that you walk into work on Sunday morning with? How can I be a blessing to somebody today? Is that the kind of attitude that we have when we go to a kid's ball game and we got to sit out in the sun for two hours? Is that the kind of attitude that we have when we need to attend a family function where there's tension and stress? Is that our attitude of how can I be a blessing in this, in this time? Probably not always, but maybe we should be more. Are we zealous for it? This is what he says, are we zealous for these good works? And to go along with this, isn't this how we would describe Jesus himself as good? He's good. So not only are we imitating the one who is good, Jesus himself, but we should also be imitating his goodness. 
That's what it means to be zealous for what is good. So then the question comes, so okay, does Peter mean then that if we are passionate about speaking and living truth and doing what is right and good, that everybody is going to like us? Because so far, we maybe could get that impression from the text. Well, that might be a nice thought for a moment, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that can be what he's saying. First off, because if you listen to Jesus at all, talk to his disciples, what did he say to them? He said, guys, you're going to be mistreated for my name's sake. If the world hates me, it's going to hate you. So we can't just think that if we do all of these things right, that everybody's going to like us. We know that's what Peter doesn't mean. Because he goes on and look at verse 14, 15, and 16. He explains how Christians are supposed to respond when they suffer. He says, even if you suffer for doing good, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He says, do not fear those who cause you to suffer. Do not be troubled by those who slander or revile you. How? How on earth... Can Christians withstand that kind of ridicule and slander and trouble in their lives? How? Look at verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is, I think, it. If Christ holds the seat of honor in your heart, right? We have honored him. We've set him apart as holy in our hearts. If he holds that seat, if his approval is what matters most to us, more than our friends, more than our spouse, more than our boss, more than government officials, more than anybody else, if it's his approval that we seek, then nothing anyone else says can make you return evil for evil, can make you revile when you've been reviled. Do you see what he's saying? If Christ, the Lord, is exalted as holy in your heart, then you can handle any situation that comes up because it's out of the heart that your mouth speaks. So our words that cross our lips will be kept in check if our heart is kept in check, right? So if Christ is ruling your heart as he should, then you know what? He rules your words and your life as well. It all belongs to him. It's all his. Not only that, but Christ ruling your heart Results in a couple of things that Peter says here. A good conscience. A clear conscience. So if this is the case, and I think that it is, look at verse 16. Christians can be prepared to answer their accusers with gentleness and respect. No matter how their attackers treat them. This may be one of the biggest things that's lacking in the Christian community in our day and age. We've got a lot of people who are steeped in apologetics and can, who can defend the faith well, but not many of them do it with gentleness and respect. Bless and do not curse. When you are reviled, do not revile in return. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do those words sound familiar? They should, because Jesus said them in Matthew Chapter 5, Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
having a good conscience. So here's a question to consider for us. If you are fearful and troubled by what others are saying about you or about your faith, are you also honoring Christ as holy in your heart? Are your heart and mind dominated by the assurance of Jesus' approval? Or are you so concerned with what others say that you are troubled and full of fear? I don't think you can have it both ways. You'll either have confidence in Christ or be fearful of the world. Peter is calling Christians to have confidence in Christ, to live a life of goodness, to live a life of holiness, of love, of gentleness and respect. And he wraps that into the last phrase in verse 16. He says, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He says, when, not if you are slandered, your good behavior will speak louder than the slanderer's accusations. Now, I read this week that Plato, you guys remember that name, Plato, the philosopher. I don't think he was a Christian, but he said something that I felt like you guys needed to hear. He was told, apparently, that he had a lot of people that didn't like him, that disagreed with him. He had a lot of enemies who spoke ill of him, he was told. And this was his response. He said, it's no matter, I will live so that none shall believe them. He's going to live so that no one will believe the bad things that have been said. Are we living that way? Because what I see at least on social media a lot of times, is getting defensive and trying to fight back. Defend your reasonings. Now certainly there's a time and a place for that. But I think overall, are, are we living as though it doesn't matter what other people say, nobody can believe what they're saying because of how I live. Is that how we're living? Are we living so that no one will believe those false accusations? Or... Might our words and actions actually agree with what the accusers are saying? We need to evaluate these things. Those who would speak against a Christian and the faith and hope they possess don't know or understand this faith or hope personally. But they can see it and they can hear it in a Christian's good life and in the reasons they give for living that way. And these are the things that are going to win the victory in the end. They have to go hand in hand, though. Our deeds must bear out our words. I said this to the students probably 10 years ago in youth ministry. I said, are you living like you say you believe? Are we living like we say we believe? When a Christian testifies... Their hope is placed where neither persecutions nor slander affect their hope. Their lifestyle must show them fearless of what the world can do. As believers, we live our witness in front of the world, but we don't bring only our words with us. We bring the power of a godly life. And there is power in a godly life, a life lived for godliness. Make no mistake, people notice when you are a pursuer of peace rather than a pursuer of drama. You guys know what I mean when I say that? Drama is exhausting. You guys get this. Being around people that constantly want drama, that have to have conflict, that's exhausting. People don't gravitate towards them. They gravitate gravitate towards people who pursue peace, who are marked by a good life, 
And then when the door swings open in those relationships, when someone sees you turning from evil and doing good and pursuing peace, then you can be ready to give them the answer for the hope that lies within you. But who's going to ask for the hope that lies within you if you act just like they do? Who's going to ask why we're so full of joy when we walk around mopey like the rest of the world? Are we giving them a reason to ask? We're going to press the pause button here in 1 Peter 3 and look at this a little bit deeper next week. Because hopefully you're thinking, yeah, I want to live a life in pursuit of godliness and in pursuit of peace, not drama. I want to live that way. But maybe you're also thinking, I'm not sure what to say if somebody asks me about it. So next week, we're going to kind of focus on verse 15 about making a defense to anyone who asks. And hopefully we'll come away next week better equipped and prepared to make that defense, to give them a reason for the hope that's within you. But do you know where it starts? Do you know where that whole process of being able to defend your faith, of knowing why you believe and being able to explain it with gentleness and respect? you know where that starts? Verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have you ever done that? Is Christ sitting in the highest place in your heart? Is he sitting in the honor seat? Is he in charge? Is he the opinion that you care more than anything about? If not, I challenge you to set aside your pride today. Turn away from sin and by God's grace be saved today. Honor him as Lord in your heart. And if you've done that, if you're a Christian, perhaps some other smaller Lord has assumed the honor seat in your heart. Maybe you've not honored Christ in your heart as holy as you should. Today is the day to kick those other smaller Lords out and put Jesus back on the throne in your heart, back in the seat of honor in your life and in your heart Because it's only when he's sitting there that, number one, are we going to be approaching situations like, how can I be a blessing today? And number two, only if he's in the honor place in your heart, are you going to be able to defend why he's there and what he's done in your life? And so I'd encourage you, if you've not put your faith in him, to do that today. Believer, set him back in that place. Make it a conscious, intentional decision today to say, I'm going to do this so that When people see my life, anything bad that they might hear about me, they would never believe because I live so differently. Let's pray. Lord, cause that to happen in me, in my brothers and sisters. Cause it to happen, that that we would desire peace, that we would pursue it. Lord, that we might not get wrapped up in the drama of this life. Uh, Paul talks about it as far as civilian affairs. Lord, help us to not get caught and wrapped up in that. Lord, there's sin involved in that that just so easily entangles us. Instead, Lord, help us to pursue peace. Help us to flee from evil. Help our tongues to not speak deceit. Help our feet to not take us towards what is wrong but away and towards what is right and good. Lord, when people think of us as Christians, no matter where we go to church, Lord, but as Christians, may people think, I hear what others are saying about this. I don't believe it. 
because I've seen their lives with my own eyes and they're different. May that be how people see us as your children. Lord, if there's any listening this morning who've who've not ever put you in the seat of honor in their heart, they've not honored you as Lord and holy, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would repent, turn away from their sin, believe in the gospel and be saved. And that you might do a mighty work, not just in salvation, but in, in sanctifying them as we go. Lord, we thank you for your word. It never fails. It always endures. And so we put our, we stake our lives on it today. In Christ's name, amen.